If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 is where we're going to begin here today. Um, I've entitled this The Word of God, part one. Uh, part two comes next week, and uh, I, I just got to thinking a lot about it. We should base our entire lives around the Word of God. And I know uh, most of you in the audience do that already, but I think it's important to know why. And I think there may be some who are skeptical among us who, who might think, well, you know, I, I really don't need the Word of God in my life. I can, I can do it. I can, I can get through this life without it. And so um, I have this at the top here. What we believe about the Word of God will impact every part of our lives. If we believe it's just a book, then that's going to have an impact on our lives because we're not going to be tapped into the very Word of God that God has left for us here on this earth. If if we believe it is what God says it is in His Holy Word, then it should and will change every part of our lives. It's our our guiding light. It is our our source of of joy and contentment. It's it's the, the stumbling block when we know what is wrong and when something is Right. And so we're going to get into it here today. We're going to look at some of the history, uh, some of the, the, the reasons why we should know that it is authentic, and uh, we're going to just look at some of the history of how we have the Bible here today. Uh, so 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, follow along with me. All Scripture, somebody say all Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that the man of God may be complete. Not 90%, not 50%, but complete. This is our instruction. This is our guidebook for all areas of life. And uh, so we're just going to kind of take a look at some of the history uh, behind uh, how we got the Bible. But first, I want to look at the scope. This is the first part uh, in the, the underline here, history, the scope of Scripture. Uh, so people may not realize this, but Scripture covers from the very beginning to the very end. And it seems simple enough, but let me read a couple of verses here. Genesis 1.1. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, starting point. For all of of human history, God created it. He began working on it. It starts right there in the beginning. Uh, We go to Revelation 21.1, towards the end of all of Scripture. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there is no more sea. So we see the scope got bigger, right? All of human history from the beginning to the new creation and onward. That's, that's what Scripture covers, right? Well, it's not really that simple because it covers even more than that. Uh, if you look at Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So not only does the scope of the Word of God cover all of human history, but it covers 
everything outside of human history as well. Because God, He wasn't created. He was everlasting into the past and everlasting into the future. He will sustain all things. And so the scope of Scripture is beyond anything that we can really comprehend. It's one of the evidences that helps prove that the Word of God is what God says it is. Uh, We look at some more context here. Proverbs 8.23, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there is an ever an earth. John 17.5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's found in the New Testament. That's Jesus solidifying who he is. He is with the Father from everlasting. Before the world was even created, he was with the Father. In John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So as we're looking at, at the scope of what the Holy Scriptures cover, it is all of human history and that beyond it. All of the history of humanity plus from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, looking at the history of some of what we know about the Bible, we're going to look at the uh, original texts when they were written. That's the next thing. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Uh, the original language was not English that the Bible was written in, right? Uh, It was originally written by Moses. Uh, He penned the first five books of the Bible, uh, 1400, 1500 B.C., and the last were the book of Revelation. That was probably the last book, and that finished up around 100 A.D. I see some late dates at like 105, but I don't think that's the case. That's when the original documents were created, 14 to 1500 B.C., all the way to 100 A.D. Um, so you may be thinking, well, that's a long time ago, and, and it is. And you may be thinking, well, I've played that game like the telephone game where you whisper into somebody's ear and it goes around the entire chain, and then by the time it gets back to me, it's like all a completely different story, right? We've all played that in school. Um, That's how the Bible came to be. If it's over 1,900 years old since the originals, then surely what we have here today is so much different than the originals. But we're going to get into that, and I'm going to show you why that is just not the case. So the original text, written between 1400 and 100 A.D., and it's something, um, something I read about just last year. People are beginning to see that that the original Hebrew language may have been the first alphabet ever created. Now, you might think, well, there's like Egyptian and Sumerian texts, all that, but the alphabet, a 26-letter alphabet, wasn't established until around this time, and they're actually beginning to see that the Hebrew may have been the first. So all the languages that use alphabets instead of pictures or little lines could have started with Hebrew. I think that's pretty incredible, and I think that's probably pretty accurate. Uh, we, whenever we get, get forward here, the history of the translations of the Bible, uh, we're going to begin to see, um, see how the Bible has been put together and how it was written and how it came to be. Uh, like I said, the original language, the first language, was Hebrew. And around 200 B.C., 
uh, they translated it into the Greek. Uh, I think we have a slide up that kind of shows, yep, I don't know if you can see this or not. Um, this is kind of a like condensed version of how the different uh, texts have evolved over the time. Uh, but we have the original manuscripts you see there at the bottom, 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D. Um, you have all these ancient copies of these books, um, all these codexes, the ancient copies. You get the Masoretic text and the Vulgate. All this, you know, th- these are some big words, but all these are just different translations of the Bible. And whenever Jesus walked the earth and he was, was preaching and teaching, the majority of the time that he quotes from the Old Testament was actually not in the Greek. It was actually in the, it wasn't in the Hebrew, it was actually in the Greek that we see. And so there's these, these different translations that have happened over the years. They were solidified in Latin, and then they came to be known in English. The first English translation was the Wycliffe Study Bible, or the Wycliffe Bible, in 1380. That's pretty incredible, really, if you think about it, because English was just barely a language in 1380, and they had already, already got together this English Bible. If you go on up, you'll start seeing the different types of Bibles here, and you'll see the Geneva Bible, 1560 was whenever it was created. It was actually the first Bible taken to America. That's what the pilgrims used, was the Geneva Bible. You'll see the King James in 1611, and actually, I found in our library, you'll see all these different texts here. I found in our library um, a 1611 uh, replica, and it says, don't, don't remove from library, so don't, don't be mad at me for that, but I just borrowed it for today, okay? I just borrowed it. Um, there's a few differences, like um, there's no letter J in it. Uh, there's a bunch of different... Um, Typeset differences. Uh, there's a few different words that they revised in the 1700s. Probably, if you're using a King James version, it is not the 1611. Uh, it may be based on that, but it'll be a revised edition, probably around the 1800s, maybe even a new one in the 1900s. So uh, we have all these different translations that we get to nowadays. Um, and you have to think about what does it mean to have a translation. Why do we even need one? If you didn't have a translation of the Bible, you'd have to read it in the original language. You'd have to learn Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. And if you know anything about those languages, you know they're completely different from our own. Uh, Hebrew, for instance, is not read left to right, but right to left. It would be backwards to us. Uh, The Hebrew language only had 3,000 root words. And from those 3,000 words, we get the entire Old Testament. The Greek had a lot more words in it. Latin, the language, had over four million words in it. The English language only has roughly a million words in it. So uh, there's some different translating issues that you kind of run into during that. So you might think it's still the telephone game, Kevin, because look at all these different copies and copies and copies. Well, I want you to look down here, kind of to the left. It says the Masoretic Text from 135 to 1200. This was the source text for most of the Bibles, as you can see. Uh, It draws a line straight up through there. That's the source text for most of the Bibles. 
And the Masoretes were a group of, of Jewish monks who made it their goal to precisely copy the Word of God. And they went to these great extremes to be able to copy them as accurately as they could. And this is all we had for a long time. We had some fragments and some different things. But then in the 1940s, they, they came across what most people call the greatest discovery of the 1900s. They came across these Dead Sea Scrolls. And these Dead Sea Scrolls no longer dated back to like 900. They dated all the way back to before Jesus walked this earth. And whenever you look at the, the Masoretic texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they line up with some amazing precision. Is this like too much information this morning? Is this overload? I can try to dial it in a little bit. I go kind of nerdy here whenever I'm talking about this. But from there, you have the different translations being being looked at. And whenever you look at all these modern translations, you kind of have an explosion of modern translations because no longer do they, they only have some of these Um, the text that they've used before, but they also have the inclusion of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are dated much, much later, and they kind of uh, reveal some different information about it. Um, We have another slide here because this can kind of get confusing. Whenever you translate Scripture, whenever you translate anything into another language, you have a couple of options. I took Spanish class whenever I was in high school, and whenever you would, you'd begin to learn a new language, sometimes they put like the subject first, and then, then the rest of the sentence comes afterwards. We don't really do that in English. We just kind of have this like hodgepodge of thoughts that come together, right? The English teachers in the room are cringing. I'm sorry. But we, uh, we have to translate it in a way that, that makes sense. So if you can go completely word for word from the ancient language into English, you're going to get the most accurate representation of what the text says. But it's going to be very difficult to read. It's going to be very difficult to read. Um, On the other hand, you can go the complete opposite way and you can say, this is what the Scripture means. We're not going word for word. We're going thought for thought. We're going, this is kind of what the Scripture entails. And, and as we get to the far end of the spectrum, it's just a paraphrase. It's, it's just what you want the reader to know. It'd almost be like reading a book on Scripture or listening to a theologian speak about it. Um, that's where you get versions like the message, right? You read the message and it's completely different from any other Bible. Well, there's a reason for that. It is not a word-for-word translation. It is a paraphrase of the Scriptures. And you can see some of these other translations are, are going in between. Probably the best that you can do is in that, that transition between word-for-word and thought-for-thought there. Uh, you'll see like the King James is in that, the New King James. The Holman Christian Standard Bible is kind of in there. They say the most accurate word-for-word word would be the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. I actually have a whole bunch of Bibles up here. Um, please don't take any of them. They're for my personal collection. But um, some of the most accurate ones are the exact word-for-word, word, but, but they read kind of different. Um, I do have the exact word-for-word. Word. It's called the interlinear. This may be one of the best gifts that I've ever received, actually, 
because it has the original language in it in one column, and then it has the English. And then actually above every single word in the original language, it has a code that you can look at and a Strong's Concordance, and you can see what it means directly translated. It's pretty amazing. It also has it for the Greek and the New Testament. You all can look at this after, the, after this is over, and you can kind of see what the original texts look like and what, what the translators did to kind of see how to translate it. I didn't know this for a long time. And whenever, whenever I was kind of looking through different Bibles, I, I, I began to wonder, like, why, why are there so many? There should just be one, right? But they each serve their purpose. And you have to stay away from certain versions because they're just blatantly wrong. Uh, if you look at a Jehovah's Witness Bible, they literally just change words. They, they, they change it to where it says something totally different. Uh, for example, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, in the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They add one little letter in there that changes the whole structure. They say the Word was a God. Not the God, a God. And it changes completely the context. And we can look at the original language, and we can say, no, that is definitely not added in there. Or the A is definitely added in there. It is no longer... Uh, an accurate translation or copy. Does this make sense? It's pretty neat to, to understand and see. You have to you have to kind of take a you have to kind of just pick one that you want if you're translating, you just kind of have to pick do I want to go exactly word for word or do I want to go thought for thought? Um so yeah, the history of the translations of the Bible cleared that right up, right? Everybody's completely 100% on board with that, right? All right. So um, that kind of talks about the history side of things, how we get the modern Bibles that we have, why there's such a large range of them, when it began, uh, 1400 BC and all the way through till 2021. And uh, they're going to keep updating our language changes, the English language, um, it's translated into the language of the world, and so there's a bunch of different ways that we can look at that. Uh, so number two that we're going to look at is the authenticity. How do we know the Bible is reliable? I just kind of made this, these three up. There's the three M's is what I like to call it. Um, there's many more proofs that the Bible is authentic, but these are my go-to. These are what I like to, like to see. Um, the martyrs. Throughout the centuries, thousands and thousands of Christians have been killed for their faith. Uh, we have a few that are outlined directly in Scripture. And we're going to look at those three, and, and it's just kind of like barely peeking through the window of human history about the martyrs. The first one is Peter. Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus predicts Peter's death in the Scriptures. Uh, in John 21, 18 through 19, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. 
This he spoke, signifying by what death he, Peter, would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. I think that's pretty incredible. Um, Peter, you walked the way you wanted to when you were young. When you're old, you're not going to walk the way you want, but instead you're going to be killed for me. So follow me. Remember, this is Peter. This is the one who uh, denied Jesus three times. We know from, from uh, his history that Peter actually died being crucified, but he didn't feel worthy to suffer the same uh, way that his Savior did, so he was elected to crucify, be crucified upside down. And so this is signifying how Peter was going to die for Jesus. The next one found in Scriptures is in Acts 12, 1 through 2. Uh, this is James. Uh, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Remember, these are just the ones that are found in Scripture. These, these, these are accurate. We could go on for days about the number of martyrs who have died for the faith. And then Stephen, Acts seven fifty nine through 60 And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now you may be thinking like, well, how do the martyrs prove that the Bible is authentic? Well, if it was all a lie, would the martyrs have died for their faith? Now you say, well, there's all kinds of martyrs from all different religions who believe in this. Well, they were with Jesus. They were right there. Um, the one that gets me the most is probably Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He, he was raised with Jesus, grew up with him, was in the same house, and he died for Jesus. He was martyred as well. So the, the three M's of the authenticity are the martyrs, and the second one is the message. You see, the, the message of Scripture is completely different from anything you see in any of the other world religions. It, it's kind of amazing whenever you look at the context of all the other religions and see what they believe. Uh, for example, most, most religions say that humanity is basically good. We're basically good people, we just need some help every once in a while. Well, Scripture kind of turns that around, right? Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Uh, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the assumption from Scripture isn't that we're basically good people. The assumption from Scripture is Everybody is born into sin, and we all are dead in our trespasses. And there's no way that we can sort of like pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? We can't do that. We can't do enough good things to be saved. We just have to surrender and believe, and God will come in and rework everything about you. He will completely change you. That's so radically different from any other religion that you will see that it is amazing. Uh, another view is, has been the, the view of women throughout all of human history. Um, I don't know if you all knew this, but women were treated pretty horribly throughout human history, and a lot of it was based in religion. But I want you to see what, what 
what Christianity has to say about this. And this was 2,000 years ago that this was spoken. This was completely unheard of. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And most people back then would be like, all right, you know, Jesus is saying something I can get on board with, right? Uh, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You're thinking, okay, like, this will work, let's just end it here. But that's not where it ends, is it? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a little bit different, isn't it? That's different from what human history has taught. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the message, the entire message of Scripture just is just different than anything else in human history. And we're going to look back at a passage I already read, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this, this just seems like a pretty straightforward uh, verse, right? In the beginning, God created everything. Um, but in 1400 B.C., whenever that line was written by Moses... Um, he was surrounded by religions who didn't believe this. He was surrounded by religions who thought that the universe started because it was like a cosmic sea and there was all these gods and one of them would, would kill their sister and then that sister would go off and they would create the air. Like, it was all different. Everything was there from eternity. But Scripture t- kind of turns that around and says, in the beginning... God created everything. And the Hebrew word there for created is bara. It means to create something brand new out of nothing. That's where we get the word ex nihilo, if you've ever heard of that. Ex nihilo from. In the beginning, God created everything. Now, up until like 1930, science tried to say that the universe was just always here. Um, actually, it was Albert Einstein who said that is the biggest blunder that he ever had in his life was sticking to that theory because science was proving that so wrong. He said the universe has been here forever. It's been in a steady state. It hasn't changed. It's been running from eternity past. It'll keep running till eternity into the future. And Einstein, my biggest blunder, was agreeing with that because they found out that the universe did have a beginning. It did start. There's a point in human history where there was nothing. Now there is something. 
And I think it's a huge proof that God exists. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, 1,400 years ago, God way ahead of its time, way ahead of anything that we had even up until 100 years ago. Scripture was already proving true. So we have the martyrs, we have the message, right? The people who died for the faith prove the text is correct. We have the message, which is, if you were writing this out and you wanted to say what you wanted to say, there's no human being who would have wrote the scriptures, right? And then there's also the manuscripts. Martyrs, message, manuscripts. You see, um, people like to say that the Bible is like the telephone game, but they don't take into account that there's literally tens of thousands of source texts that date back to shortly after Jesus. We don't have the originals, the, the ones that were hand-pinned. We wouldn't expect to because those would have been moved around from different places. But we do have copies and copies and copies and copies of those. So we have the early manuscripts, and most people think that, well, you can't use the Bible to prove itself, but the Bible's really unique because we actually have one, two, three, four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Right? We have those four. That's incredible. Uh, you've, you all have heard of the Odyssey, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey. We have one copy of that from who we think wrote it, and it's separated from the original story by 900 years. And we take that to be mostly a record of history. But here we have the scriptures where there's four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all independent accounts. They all say the same thing, only in different ways. And, and we tend to think, well, like you can't prove the Bible is true by, say, by itself, right? But but that's pretty incredible in human history. By the standards of proving something is true, that's amazing in itself. But we also have church fathers who existed around the time of Jesus, shortly after Jesus, who wrote about it. And we have all of the different proofs throughout human history. It's pretty incredible. We also have, during the Roman times, whenever Jesus was around, we have critics. Uh, we had Jewish people writing about Jesus. So if you're a Jewish person and you didn't believe in Jesus, you would be a critic of Jesus. And we have one of those, Josephus. He affirms that Jesus actually did die on the cross for his faith. Uh, so we have all these different proofs of Scripture. Y'all following with me still? <laughs> we have the history of Scripture. That was our first point. We have the authenticity, why it is true. And then uh, we're going to get through this last one really quickly. Um, number three is that the Bible is inspired, and it is also inerrant. It is inspired, and it is also inerrant. We're going to go back to that first text, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. What that means is that all of Scripture was written by human hands. A person wrote down the original text of the Bible. It was people. 100% a person wrote that down. But they're being inspired by God to write down the exact words. 
They're being inspired by God to write down the concepts and the thoughts for it. Scripture is inerrant. We look at Psalm 119. It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Not like, forever, Lord, until 2021, your, your word is settled. No, no, no. It's forever, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Somebody say all generations. All generations. You establish the earth and it abides. We're also going to look at Matthew five seventeen and 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Um, I have a, a picture here. This is in the original language. That's a jot. It's, just, it's almost like a little apostrophe. And then that is a tittle. As you see, the one is smooth, and then the other just has that little line. That's the difference. Not only is Scripture affirming that every idea is inspired, that every word is inspired, but I believe this, this verse proves that every single letter in the original language has been purposefully put in place in a designated area where it needs to be. It is inspired to agree that even that one little bitty line in text is inspired. Which gets us to uh, the very last point that I'm going to go over. Um, this may not be a term that you've heard of before, but we call it verbal plenary inspiration. Um, that's a lot of the times what people believe. Um, I'll cover the middle word first because you may have never heard it. Plenary just means all, the total, right? The sum parts. So all of Scripture has been inspired. Uh, we keep the concepts. We keep the ideas. God wanted us to know certain things like you can only be saved through Jesus Christ alone. Um, so the whole entirety of Scripture. But verbal means every single word is inspired, Every single word. So plenary, the complete ideas and concepts for all of Scripture are intact. Verbal, each individual word of Scripture is important and specific when the, within the entire Bible. So I'll kind of leave you with this. Um, there's sort of a conundrum here uh, whenever we get to translations. And you all may disagree with me on this. I believe that the English translations are inspired in a plenary sense. All the ideas that are held within the scriptures, they're there. They're intact. God has preserved them through his word very meticulously. But if every single letter matters in the Hebrew and we have to translate it, I don't know that we can say that down to the very word that it is inspired. Because like the English word and was not in Hebrew. We have to add that because it's our language. Did God inspire that particular word? I don't think so, because it says that he inspired every single letter. Now, does that mean that this can't be accurate? No, it is extremely accurate. Any of these up here are going to be a very good translation of what the original text says. But I just want to cover all this. This is part one. Part two is going to get into 
who Jesus is as the Word of God. And we're going to look at every single part of this is important for our lives. And whenever we can see this as truth, not just something that we, we think is true or might be true, but whenever it is truth, it will shape and change every aspect of your life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we just want to thank you so much, Lord, for uh, protecting and keeping your word true. We want to thank you, Lord, that, that you didn't just create everything and then leave us, but you left us a source book for knowledge in every area of our lives. And Father, I know that, that in a room this size, many people in here probably don't even open your word Maybe until they come here on Sundays, Lord. Maybe that's the only time. And so, Father, I pray that we could just get reconnected with, with the very words that you have left for us. That we could have a hunger and a desire for you and your word, and that you would allow us to just be changed by what you have for us. Lord, I pray that anybody in here who, who does not know you here today, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, and that they could turn to your word, turn to you, and seek you above all things. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.